as we get ready for this morning's message, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just, uh, this is the day that you've given us. And so, Father, we say thank you. We want to worship you and fill it with joy in our hearts because there is victory in Jesus. And, Lord, we cling to you. We hold fast to you, Lord. Right now, Father, there's many that are hurting. So, Father, I just pray over those with anxiety and feeling stressed out that they would receive your peace. And it would surpass all understanding, Father, that you would just let them rest in you. And they would cling to you and hold fast to you. Lord, I pray this morning for marriages. I pray that you'd strengthen marriages. I pray that we would be quick to forgive and love and restore and heal, Lord, through the blood of Jesus Christ. What you've given to us, may we extend to one another. Lord, I also pray for those that are hurting and with the loss of a loved one, Lord. Would you just hold fast to them? Would you wrap your arms around them and care for them and love them? And may they sense your presence with them moment by moment throughout the day. Lord, would you strengthen them? Lord, we just love you. Lord, there's some that have been given uh, tough news in the last couple weeks and uh, procedures that they've got to go through. Lord, we just pray your healing hand upon them, Lord. You are the great physician, and we claim the blood of Jesus and protection over them, Lord, as we trust you. Lord, would you just ignite in us your spirit, your Holy Spirit. May it be true, and may we bubble out of us to share the good news of Jesus with this community that so desperately needs Jesus. And we pray for more of that. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. We're going to be in Judges today. Judges chapter 17 is where we'll begin. And um, I don't know uh, if you recognize, we've been in Judges for quite a while. And uh, every good book, every, you know, TV series eventually comes to an end, okay? So we're going to kind of wrap up the book of Judges today, and some of you may be ready to move on, and, uh, but I think it's been challenging and raw and real for a lot of us as well. Judges chapter 17, I'm just going to give a quick little warning today. This is a pretty dark and gruesome chapters that we're going to go through, 17 through 21. And some of you may have read ahead, but I want you to know it's more... PG-13 today, and then this, uh, the stories and the scriptures, passages, and, uh, and so I wanted to kind of give you that heads up as we head into it today. Um, this is a state that I like to call uh, Christian atheism, and uh, this is where people absolutely believe in God, but practically speaking, you know, and we're going to look at it through this passage, they just live like atheists, okay? And we see a lot of people in our culture living like this, that fit this kind of category. And, and some of you, you know, probably most of us, you know, regard, regardless of where we are on the political sides, believe that this country is headed in a very dangerous way. And so it's a very difficult time, and a lot of Christians feel like the sky is falling morally, right? It's just tough out there, and we feel like that. And so I want you to see that this is the one thing I think we can all agree on and we have in common is that our country is in trouble, and we're going to see this in chapters 17 through 21 is going to describe a time very similar to what we are experiencing today as well. It's going to show us that Scripture says there is nothing new under the sun. 
And so we're going to see that it's true. But the same hope that they have is the same hope that we have as well. And we're going to look at that today. So Judges chapter 17 is where we're going to begin. Samson was the last judge we talked about. He is dead, okay? And we talked two weeks about that. Chapter 16 opens up with kind of a random story about a guy named Micah who overhears his mom kind of utter a curse on the person who stole her money. She had 1,100 pieces of silver. It was stolen, and she cursed the person who stole the money. Well, it turns out that he had enough of his uh, belief in God that he didn't want to be cursed. He feared that curse, and he was the actual, the son was the actual one that stole the money. So he went to his mom and says, hey, mom, I'm sorry, here's your money back. Now, please take that curse off as well. And so the woman is so grateful that she has her money back that she not only removes the curse, but she also says in verse 3, it says, I solemnly consecrate this silver to the Lord for my son Micah to make an image overlaid with silver. So it says, I'm going to celebrate that my, this money's back. I'm going to make a statue and this wasn't a statue of some foreign god. This was actually a statue of Jehovah, Israel's God, okay? So verse 5 and 6, let's continue on. Micah made a shrine, and he installed one of his sons as the priest. Pretty convenient, right? Hey, there's my son. You can be the priest. Verse 6, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, okay? So there's no rule. Everyone's just doing what they want to do. Friends, I'm going to give you a couple points about Christian atheism, what it looks like and the dangers of it so that we can recognize it. The first thing Christian atheism does is it redefines God. Rather than submitting to God, it says, I'm going to make God who I want it to be. Because this woman is in direct violation of the second commandment not to make any images or any statues in the likeness of God. That's the second commandment. And a lot of people are like, I get the first commandment, you know, we should have no other gods before you. But the, the, the second commandment, that's the one we're kind of like, what's the big deal in, you know, having a statue made in the image of God? Well, here's why we shouldn't do that. Because no image can possibly capture the full range of God's glory. Okay? No image, however you design it, cannot capture it. Inevitably, your image, you will highlight parts you like of God, and you will not highlight parts of God that you don't want to highlight. So maybe you magnify his strength. You're like, I'm going to make him really strong. Or maybe you magnify his grace, but you don't want to, you kind of talk about his purity and his justice. And so whatever you do, you end up making a distortion of God. That's why it's dangerous. It's not God as he is, it's God as we want him to be, okay? Which is not really God at all. So, it's really a rejection of God. So, this uh, goes hand in hand with kind of the redefinition of morality. That's what happens. We start to redefine God, how we want him to be. We refine, redefine morality, what we want it to be as well. And it's very, very dangerous, uh, because it, you'll see in verse 6, it says, there's no king. So now everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. So they're just redefining God. They're redefining what's right and wrong, and they're making it according to their preferences. And I think, friends, if we're honest, I think that's actually the sin of this 
whole culture is that we, you know, kind of want to, people in our culture don't reject Jesus. They're like, no, no, I, I respect Jesus and I, I, you know, accept Jesus as well, but we want Jesus to look like how we want him to look, Amen. right? We want this, my Jesus does this and my God would never say that. And so we kind of make Jesus how we want him to do. And what happens is that is a full scale rejection of God. When we, re, when we define God, and morality as we prefer, you're really not submitting to God. You're really just submitting and worshiping your own preferences. That's what's happening. That's what's so dangerous, you know? And I'm not just talking about people out there. I'm talking about people that are also in the church. What we do is we say, okay, you know what? Uh, that's, I'm not going to read that part of the scripture. It's a little uncomfortable. I'm just going to read what I want to read and read about his grace and his mercy. And that's what we can do in the scriptures. And we have to admit, you know what? We want to make what's in our own eyes more important than God's word. And friends, that's so dangerous, you know, for any one of us. So we're going to continue on with this story and show you the second thing Christian atheists do as well. So verse 7, um, after Micah makes this statue, right, and puts it in his house, he meets a Levite, okay, that was traveling through town. A Levite is the priestly class of, of Israel. So Micah was like, oh good, a Levite, you can come and you can, it'll be perfect. You can be the priest for my statue. And so the priest says, well, Technically, first of all, you shouldn't have made a statue. <laughs> and then second of all, how much does it pay? And he says, you know what? It pays a lot. And the priest says, well, let me go pray about that. And somehow he got a really quick answer. You know what? God says I should do it. So he says, yes, in verse 13 of chapter 16, uh, this is what it says, uh, 17. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. So I know that God's going to be good to me since I got a statue and I got a priest over my statue, right? You know, in other words, I've now got God on the hook to my preferences. And that's the second thing Christian atheism does. It uses God rather than worshiping him. You know, we just had a wonderful time of worship. That was incredible, just worshiping our God. But instead, a lot of times what they were doing is using God. And that can be dangerous for us as well. Micah does this by assuming two different things. The first thing he assumes is that God exists to serve him. And the second thing he assumes is if I do things right, then God is obligated to bless me. Those are the assumptions with Micah is living upon. And I'm telling you, friend, any, the, the, the substitute we make for true faith is religiosity, okay? And we can do all these religious things and we, we kind of, those are built upon those same two principles. God exists for you and if you do things right, God will owe you. Well, let me tell you, friend, that's not true faith. This is what true faith says. It says, God, I exist for you and you don't owe me anything. I owe you everything. That's what true faith says. Lord, it's yours. What can I do? I lay down my life. I submit to you. That's what true faith does. It says, uh, you know what? What skills do I have, Lord? How do you want me to use the skills that you've given to me? And in hard times, this is what true faith says. God, I can't believe that I still get to be saved that your grace is so big, even in this hard, difficult time, I get to worship and glorify a good God that loves me. So I'm telling you, friend, false religion seeks to control God. True faith surrenders 
to God. So which kind of God are you seeking today? That's a question that we need to kind of recognize in our own lives. Because let me show you real quick what happens when we try to reduce God down to kind of a control size. This is what happens. In the next chapter, okay, another group of Israelites is going to show up, chapter 18, and they're going to show up at Micah's house. And guess what? This group that's traveling through has even more money than Micah. So now they say, you know what? They persuade their Levite, their priest, hey, I've got more money. You can come with us. And they steal his statue. Well, Micah comes up after them and he says, hey, guys, wait a second. You can't take my priest. You can't take my statue. And they say, well, what's the big deal? Don't chill. You know, don't get so bent out of shape. And this is what he says in verse 24 of chapter 18. He says, and Micah said, if you take my gods that I made, what have I left? What do I got left if you take the, the statue and my priest? You know, in other words, when you shrink God down to a size that you control, you always live in fear of losing him. That's what happens. When you are surrendered to the true God, then you quit worrying about it because you know he will never lose you. And so, friend, we need to recognize when we, when we kind of uh, try to control God, what happens is you start to live with anxiety. God, have I pleased you enough? Have I done enough? Did I show up? Did my attendance look? Does it good? Did I give enough? And we start worrying all the time that we're going to lose God. But when you really surrender to God, there's a peace. There's an incredible peace that you're sitting before a God that loves you and cares for you. And so, you know, have you surrendered to God today? Are you trying to manage Him? Are you trying to control God in a controlled size seat? So I want to continue. This next story shows you what happens when God is absent, and it's not very pretty. Chapter 19 is where we're going to go, verse 1, if you look here. It says, now a Levite, I want you to know this is a different one, this is a new story, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Okay, that's just a bad start, okay? The priest is taking a concubine, okay? Not very good. Verse 2, but she was unfaithful to him. So she left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem. So he goes back after her and tries to convince her to come back with him. And then he goes to her dad and says, hey, you know what? She needs to come back with me. I paid for her fair and square. Well, to make a very long story short, he prevails. So he puts her back on his donkey and starts the journey back to home. Verse 14 is where we'll go, 19, chapter 19, verse 14. And the sun set as they neared Gebeth and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat at the city square. When you sat at the city square as you're traveling, that's what you did before there was Holiday Inn. Okay, so you would go there and wait till somebody invited you into their house and have you spend the night. The problem was nobody took them in for the night. Finally, it says, there's an old guy that shows up in verse 20. If you want to skip ahead, it says, you are welcome at my house, the old man said. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. And so they're setting there, settling in for the night. They go there, they wash their feet, they get some food to eat. Go to verse 22. 
Some of the wicked men in the city surround the house, pounding on the door, and they shouted to the old men who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Well, the old man and the Levite were scared. They were worried about these men outside the house. So instead, they offered up their concubine, okay? Very horrible. Verse 25, so the Levite took his concubine and sent her outside, and they raped her throughout the night. Verse 26, at daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying and fell down with her hands outstretched on the threshold of the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, apparently giving no thought to her, very sad, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. Verse 28, and he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set for home. Verse 29, when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them to all the areas of Israel. Verse 20, then all Israel, uh, I mean chapter 20, verse 1, sorry. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. And they say to that Levite, they say in verse 3, tell us how this awful thing happened. And this is what happens. He tells the whole story, but somehow he conveniently leaves out the story about him, you know, sending out his concubine to be taken advantage of. And he leaves that part out. Well, it provokes outrage in all the people. So verse 11, chapter 20. So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. So they amassed this huge army, 400,000 soldiers that go and march against the Benjaminites. And they demand the Benjaminites send out and surrender those evil men that did this, but Benjamin wouldn't do it, okay? So this massive fight breaks out, and at first it looks like the Benjaminites are winning. Go to verse 26 in chapter 20. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat and wept before the Lord. Verse 27, and the Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And he did. It was a rout. The next day, go to verse 48, you can see the end of it. The men of Israel put all the towns of Benjamin to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. The only ones to escape were 600 Benjaminite men that would go and they hid in the caves for protection. Chapter 21, the Israelites know that these guys have escaped. Okay, there's a small group that's escaped and they take this vow. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjaminite. Well, a few months go by. As you can imagine, it was very hot and frustrating. Things start to cool down. Tempers start to cool down. And all of a sudden, these 600 Benjaminites come out of hiding. And they come back out. And they say, you know what? Our wives, our daughters have been killed. They're all dead. And so now what? we're men. And so what? we need some women to marry to have kids with. Okay? And so they're in a pickle. Because the Israelites have made this vow that no one should marry a man from the Benjaminites. But now they, things have cooled down. They think, you know what? It's too bad that tribe has to go extinct. So 
verse 2 of chapter 21, the people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, weeping bitterly. Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Almost kind of like, God, what, why did you let this happen? Why did you do this? Why did you fail us? Kind of what they're saying here in, in that passage. So they come up with the plan, not God. They come up with the plan. Verse 8, they asked, you know, when they were uh, preparing to go attack the Benjaminites, that huge massive army, they said, was there anyone that didn't participate? Was there any group in the region that didn't participate? And they thought about it, and they said, you know what? Nobody came from Hebesh Gilead. And they said, okay, we're going to, verse 10, go to verse 10 in chapter 21. It says, so they assembled 12,000 of their best warriors to go to Hebesh Gilead with orders to kill everyone there, including women and children. Verse 11, this is what you are to do. Kill every male, every woman who is not a virgin. And so they did that. And that left them with 400 girls to serve as wives. But that's not enough. Remember, that's 200 short. So, um, verse 20, they told the, the men of, uh, of Benjamin there that there's this tribe up in Shiloh, they remembered. And every fall, this tribe in Shiloh would have their women go out and do a, a traditional dance. And the guys would stay home, and all the ladies would be out in this field doing a dance. Well, they thought that would be the perfect time to kidnap some. So that's what takes place. Verse 21, when they see the young women come out for their dances, rush out from the vineyards, and each one of you take one home to the land of Benjamin to be your wife. And so that's what they did. And the book of Judges ends like that. Chapter 25, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When God is absent, it's not very pretty, is it? That's horrible. When God is absent, here's what happens. Two things. I'm going to tell you the first thing is, is the weak get abused, okay? Inevitably, casting off the rule of God defining morality in a way that benefits the strong. The strong's going to define things like so they can take advantage of those that are weak. And that's what happens. These last chapters of Judges are horrific. and They're horrific specifically towards those who are weak. Think about the, the Israelites who got oppressed, especially the weaker tribes. They took advantage of the weaker tribes. Who else did the other take advantage of? Israelite groups such as the women. And one scholar actually pointed out that you could probably evaluate Israel's relationship with God, how strong they were with how they treated women. Because if you remember at the very beginning of Judges, the Canaanites were the ones who took advantage of the women, oppressed Israelite women. And now Israel's doing that to them themselves. And so, and what's even worse is they're almost acting like they're doing God a favor. They're almost acting like, God, we're good with you. We're right with you. We're just trying to do the right thing. And so they just kind of come up with these plans, and that's horrible. I mean, who, this Levite priest should have been rebuked. Who was not rebuking him for having a concubine, one, but also sending this woman out into, to be taken advantage like that all throughout the night? That was horrible. And where's the concern for the, the women that are being kidnapped in this field during this dance? 
And, and where's the concern in these chapters of the innocent Israelites throughout this book? It's just horrible. But that's what happens when you take God out of the equation. The strong, the powerful change things to where they can take advantage of those who are weak. Let me tell you something. One of the most profound achievements of our American Constitution is that they grounded our rights not in democracy or in the will of the people, but in God's created order. It says in our, in our Constitution, we are endowed by our Creator with inalienable rights, which means we are not subject to the whims of the majority at the time that those can be taken away from. And friends, when a society dismisses God, the strong are inevitably take advantage and oppress the weak. That's what happens throughout our culture and our society. So where is that happening today? I'm telling you, friends, there are people and children that don't have parents, and they're growing up in, in foster care. And I'm telling you, those kids are absolutely made in the image of God, aren't they? And they deserve the love of God. We should be able to tell them, but a lot of times they become invisible to us. And the pain that they're walking through are invisible to us. So when we have the opportunity, Christian, we come alongside of them. We love them. We, we step up where we can step up. What about the unborn child, right? That unborn child is absolutely made in the image of our Creator and worthy of dignity and respect and to be loved, I'm telling you, friends, whether you're a college student, a high school student, a middle school student, where can you step up for those that are getting picked on? I guarantee there are kids in their school right now that feel alone, isolated, step, you know, being a bullied. Are you a part of the bullying? Are you stepping up, speaking up for them? Because Christians, you will feel so close to the Lord when you step up and for the power of someone who is being weak and, and being torn down. Friends, I want you to know that lastly, there are lots of people that don't know Jesus. And you may work with them. And friend, where is God calling you to be a light and sharing the hope of Christ? Christians, when we give ourselves away for the week, it's a sign that you have been filled with God's love and his presence, and, and we're shining with that. So that's number one. When God is absent, the weak get oppressed. We see that in our culture. And the second thing is when God is absent, we live in despair. If you notice, this, this chapter ends, the very end, verse 25, with desperation. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. At the beginning, it sounded pretty good. God, I'm going to define you. I'm going to make a statue to you. I'm going to define how you, you should bless me. And then at the end, it's just horrible. We just see horrible act after horrible act by these people, you know, that are just, it's just devastating. So here's where the story takes a turn. Because this is, Judges is not written as the only book in the Bible. It's a part of the Bible. And Judges is actually written at the exact same time all of this is going on. There's a parallel book being written. The la it's the, the book of Ruth, Okay. And that last chapter, ironically, I want you to tell you about Ruth. Ruth wasn't even an Israelite. She was a widow, and she was a foreign widow, which would have been the lowest on the Israelites' totem pole. But unlike the Jews, she trusts God in the face of impossible odds. And here's 
you know, unlike the despair we see in Judges, here's how Ruth ends. The book of Ruth that was being written at the parallel time as what's going on. Chapter 4, verse 21 of Ruth. You can find it on the screen. This is what it says. And Boaz and Ruth fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. And David, let me tell you, would have a son who had had a son who had a son who was Jesus. Okay? So this book that's written in parallel shows you where the strength of Israel and the judges fail, God would save through someone who is considered weak like Ruth. The king that we thought was so strong that, you know, like Samson that would force everybody to believe, you know, would show us that it was really someone who weak like Ruth, who would be poor like Ruth and wandered homelessly like Ruth that would change our hearts to obey him. And, and it's his death that was actually the most horrible, gruesome thing. And I got to tell you, these chapters right here are horrible. Chapters 17 through 21 are very dark and very gruesome. But let me tell you, they are not the darkest chapters in the Bible. The most gruesome distortion of the Bible is the, actually the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I, I, Roman historians, one was Cicero, said that the Romans' goal in crucifixion was to create such a spectacle, such a horrific spectacle, that nobody would ever dare rebel again. So they were trying to really make a point. So what they would do is they would beat them to where they were barely recognizable. I don't know if you've seen the, the Passion of the Christ. It is an incredible story, uh, a picture of what it looked like for Jesus to bear what he bared for us. And it beat him, and it beat them unrecognizable. That's what uh, Isaiah says. And I want you to know, Cicero also said that what would happen, it wasn't uncommon for them to scour, scourge them so much that a rib bone would just go flying from his body. Uh, that's what took place. And they would do it in this very public place. It was like a mall where everybody was gathered around. And what he went through on the cross was so painful that, that men would weep and they would even vomit and urinate on themselves, a very embarrassing kind of death to humiliate them, all while religious leaders walked around congratulating themselves on you know, doing the work of God. This was a dark time. And why was he enduring all of that darkness? For my sin, for your sin, for our sin, friend. He entered into Judges chapter 17 through 21 for us. And he paid the price for our sin and, and bared the horrific nature of our sin. That's why the cross was so bloody, because our sin demanded that. And he, you know, didn't just, you know, throw him out some woman to be cut up. No, he himself took on and bared it for us so that we, his bride, could be redeemed and spotless in his sight. That's what Jesus did for us. Friend, I want you to hear this hymn as we close. And some of you may recognize it, but it's powerful. It says, dark is the stain that I cannot hide. Who can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Brighter than snow you can be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. 
That is true for you and I today. And maybe you're living in a time right now, it feels like Judges 17 through 21. And what we're doing is we're trying to redefine God and, and try to use Him and take advantage of those that are weak and poor. But friend, God's grace is greater than all of that. And it can pardon and it can cleanse within. Give a hand for God's grace. He is so good. Absolutely, friend. Today, instead of redefining him, let's surrender to him. Amen? Let's surrender to a good God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come before you. And as we come to the end of Judges, Father, it's hard. It's hard to see what this, play, this world looks like without God. And God, I, I, I just want to ask for forgiveness. As so many times we try to remove God from the equation here and our culture is suffering because of it, Lord, we pray for more of your grace. Lord, instead of trying to control you, may you just take over. May we surrender to you and surrender to your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we'd live for you, that the gifts that we've been given and how you've been trusted us with it, that we would bless you and use it for your kingdom and use it for your glory. May your name be lifted high, Lord Jesus, and may we surrender to you. Thank you that you give us this freedom to worship you. May we use it to worship you and not try to control you or manipulate you, Lord, and, and forgive us, Lord. Forgive us from our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a blessed week.